go ahead and get started. We have uh, assignment due this week will be homework number four. So I gave those out previously. So that's through chapter 27, which is the work we're going to be covering uh, through today. So and then next time, uh, not next time, next week, week from today, we have the exam, exam number four. That's the great one. That's the one that cannot hurt your grade. <laughs> So, because I dropped one of the four exams. So, if it's your worst exam, it gets dropped. If it's better than one of the others, it helps you. So, no matter what you do on them, it can help you. So, you don't want to just, you know, ignore it. But if you've had a poorer grade on an exam, this is a chance to, as long as you do a couple points better, that one will get dropped and this one will be the one that's recorded in its place. So, don't forget that is Monday of next week. And... The review quizzes are due before class that Monday as well. So make sure you get those, get a few extra points to help you uh, towards, the, uh, towards the class as we come down towards the end. Uh, then uh, other last big project, in fact, the biggest part of your grade remaining is the solar project. That's 145 more points towards it. So that's the, only, that's the biggest thing left because the final's only 100. So uh, we're gonna be working on that. That's actually our lab for this Tomorrow, or tomorrow, how about Wednesday? Our lab for Wednesday will be going over the solar project. I'll spend the first part of the class going over how to do the calculations, how to do the graphs. You'll have the remainder of the class to work on them. Um, we're actually a lab ahead because I gave you a lab that uh, fall break week, which we met on Wednesday, but Wednesday was supposed to be Monday because of the way they switched things around. So we're actually one lab ahead. So if you don't get the stuff done on Wednesday, you'll have time after exam on Monday. I'm not gonna have a separate lab. It's gonna be that, I'm gonna do the same lab both days. So I won't be lecturing or explaining how to do this stuff because we'll have exam going on, but you will have time afterwards if you need more time to finish it up. Or if you happen to finish it up Wednesday, then you're done after the exam on Monday. There won't be a separate lab to do. And then the last lab, number 14, which is scheduled will be the last week of class. So that's pretty much all we're gonna be doing next time. There won't be any regular lecture. And as long as I get through all of chapter 26 and 27 today, which should be, we should be in pretty good shape for those. Um, and then the solar project and the only other things coming up, there is a fifth homework, what you can do to drop a previous homework if you like, and the final exam. We're coming right down to the end now. So questions? All right. Well, let's go ahead and start with our picture. Actually, a very short video clip, kind of an animated video. Let me clear this. Come on. There we go. Uh, this is an object now known as Arokoth. If you've seen pictures of it before, if it might look familiar, if you'd followed any uh, astronomy news over the last year, this is actually, used to be known as Ultima Thule. It finally got its official name. That was kind of its unofficial nickname that it had been given. Uh, it's finally been officially named by the International Astronomical Union. And that is the official name of this. This is an object out in the Kuiper Belt, which is a set of objects out beyond uh, Neptune. Oh, thank you. I think I need you. I put that below you because I know you were here. Um, so it's out beyond Neptune, and there's a whole ton of these objects. I know we don't really cover the solar system in this class, so we haven't really gone over a lot of this, but this is the, the thing that's so interesting about it is that this is a small object that was studied. It's only tens of kilometers across, so it's kind of the building block for our solar system. These are the things that are left over. So it was stuff like this that formed the planets. So why do astronomers want to study some little tiny object billions of miles away? This is out beyond Neptune, out beyond Pluto. And it's kind of the building block. And it's the first time we can see one up close. These objects are so small. We can see, we did, it was detected from Earth by Hubble um, uh, several, when was it? Back in 2012, if I remember. Don't hold me to that one. But it was detected by Hubble, but it's a little dot. To actually see it, we have to get out there. Even Pluto, much larger object, we saw vague features on it, light and dark areas. We really couldn't see what it looked like until we actually flew out there. So to really see one of these objects is quite important for us to be able to understand the, the types of things that formed our solar system. So, questions? 
It's, it's, it's in the Kuiper belt, K-U-I-P-E-R, um, out beyond Neptune. It's, uh, there's also an asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. That tends to be rocky objects. This is a little further out. This is out in the icier part of the solar system. So it's uh, what, they call, what they call the Kuiper belt out beyond Neptune. Other questions? All right. Well, we will go ahead and see what we've got here. Now, if I recall correctly, and I'm getting to the point where I have two classes here and we're back to the same kind of schedule, I, was, I had gone through the first couple parts of Chapter 26, which talked about galaxies and then talked about the distance scales to measuring distances. Is anyone telling me I'm not? Okay. I'm sure you agree. Okay. I think I had the last section of this chapter to go and then the Chapter 27. So we're pretty much on, pretty well on schedule here. But when you do the same lecture twice in the same day, it starts to run together as to exactly where did I end this class and where did I end this class? So right now we're looking at, we talked about galaxies. We talked about some ways of measuring distances that got us way out to the edge of the, edge of the universe. But what we were missing was that last little bit. And here what we're going to look at is, first of all, the expansion of the universe. And that's going to give us our last little step in determining distances. How can we figure out how far away the most distant galaxies are? These are galaxies so far away that even a supernova going off is invisible. It just fades out too much. If it has to travel 10, 12 billion light years, its light isn't going to make it to us here. So the expansion was actually originally found by Vesto Slaefer of the Lowell Observatory. Lowell Observatory was really known for studying planets. And in fact, Percival Lowell is one who really led the search trying to find an object out beyond Neptune. And he was looking at what they called the spiral nebulae. Back then, a little over 100 years ago, we didn't know what a galaxy was. We saw them. We saw these spiral uh, objects out in, the, out in the universe, but we didn't know that they were something different than any other nebula within our, within our galaxy. So back even in the early 1920s, there was quite a debate among astronomers as to whether these spiral nebulae were actually galaxies of their own out beyond our Milky Way, or if they were nebulae, like things like, things like the Orion Nebula or other star-forming regions within our Milky, Milky Way. So he was actually looking at these as maybe planetary systems forming. And you can imagine, if you're not realizing that they're a galaxy, you might think, well, here's the central core is forming a star, and the outer layers are what's going to form into the planet. So maybe these were planets forming. But what was found was that they all exhibited really large redshifts. So when you looked at the spectral lines here, and compared to what you saw in the object, so here would be, say, the laboratory, here would be the object itself, everything was shifted to the red. And in some cases, not just by a little bit, but by a lot. Now, we didn't really have the understanding there. This started to come a little bit later in the later 1920s. Uh, Lamatra gave us, actually published a paper that suggested an expanding universe. And this is something that is that general relativity could have predicted. It didn't quite. I mean, it, well, it did predict it, but Einstein fixed up his equations to allow the universe to be static and unchanging, which is really what we thought the universe was like back before this, that the universe was just unchanging. You always had galaxies out there. Everything was always exactly the same, and there weren't any changes. The universe wasn't expanding or contracting. But general relativity actually predicted that predicted that the, um, that the universe could be expanding. Now, when you're solving the equations, there are some constants that come in. And if you set that one constant correctly, then you can say that everything is uniform. And that's actually what Einstein did with what he called his cosmological constant. So it was a way to adjust his equations to fit the knowledge of the time. How did things work? But it turns out that it actually did, could have, I mean, Einstein could have made this prediction that the universe should be expanding just based on his equations. And the evidence here was based on these observations, that all of these objects are redshifted 
that seems to say that things are getting further and further away from each other. Now, this was expanded on by Hubble in the 1930s. And in fact, in 1929, he published one uh, limited amount of data, and then he had a lot more by 1931 looking at even more distant objects. And what Hubble found was not only is the universe expanding, but there's a relationship between the velocity, how fast things are expanding, and how far away they are. So things that are further away are moving away faster. And this is what he found in 1929. Now you can see, maybe you can see there's a little bit of a line between there that it's actually increasing a little bit. Harder to see there. When he had more data and was able to look at objects further away, it looks much better. So you have a little bit of scatter down here, but as you get much further out, you really seem to see a distinct, uh, distinct relationship between how far away something is and how fast it's moving. The good thing for us in terms of determining distances, this is easy to measure. Velocities are easy to find. All we need to do is to measure the spectrum. How far are the lines shifted? Right? We went through way back in chapter five how to use the Doppler formula. Well, if you figure out the shift of the lines, I could tell you the velocity. Now, if I know the velocity, I can tell you the distance. This means I don't have to depend on any other standard candles. I just need to measure the velocity. Boom, measure the velocity, and I get the distance. So it's a very quick way of getting things out to the edge of the universe because any visible galaxy, as long as there's enough light for us to get a spectrum of it, can then be we can get the distance. The other good thing, guess what? We don't have to wait for a supernova to go off in that galaxy, which was our other best method to get it way out to the edge of the universe. We don't have to sit there and wait for that supernova if we want to measure the distance to a specific galaxy. As long as we've got enough light from it to get a spectrum, I get the velocity, read over, okay, that says it is so many millions of light years away. Now, it does depend on calibrating it in the first place. You have to know what the slope of this line is, so that means you have to know distances to some galaxies. And you can get those through the other methods we've talked about. But once you get those, we can then use that to be able to determine, actually determine distances. And that's what's given by Hubble's law. Hubble's law says that the V, the velocity of recession, is equal to a constant, named Hubble's constant, times the distance. So velocity we can get from the the Doppler effect. Distance is what we're trying to find. Once we figure, as long as we know what Hubble's constant is, all I got to do is take the velocity that I measure, divide it by Hubble's constant, and I know what the distance is. So it's a great way to be able to determine distances out to the edge of the universe. Again, the key is you've got to know what Hubble's constant is. And that was one of the things that for decades and decades was a source of controversy. What is the value for Hubble's constant? because there are some errors, nothing's perfect. So you can imagine this could be a little steeper, it might be a little shallower, especially as you start to get more data points in there. So it's not like it's perfect, but once you learn what Hubble's constant is or get a pretty good estimate of it, it's a great way to get distances. So that's kind of what we're doing here. If we can determine Hubble's constant, essentially it's the slope of the line, now we can get distances. There's two requirements. We've got to be able to have enough light to get a spectrum. If it's so faint that we can't see it, cannot, cannot see, get enough light to get a spectrum of it in a reasonable amount of time, we can't determine its distance. But pretty much any galaxy that we can see, we can do this for. The other thing, it has to be beyond our local region of space. Hubble's law does not, look, not work when things are very close together and when things are bound to, get, are bound to gravitationally bound together. That's because within nearby clusters and within our own clusters, galaxies are moving, and some of them might be moving away from us, some of them might be moving towards us. Well, for things that are only a couple million light years away, they're only moving at 22 kilometers per second. Now, that, that's a fast speed for us, but out in space, that's slow. That's not really moving all that fast, so things might have random motions that are overwhelming that. So if it's, not, if it's in our local region of space, random motions can kind of cause errors in this, but that's not a big deal because we can determine those distances by other matters. There are other ways we can get distances for things that are just millions of light years away. 
But when you get out to billions of light years and tens of billion, 10 billion light years, this works great because the random motions then are still very small compared to how fast the thing is actually moving away. So how does Hubble's law work? Well, if the value, which is now accepted, is somewhere around 22 kilometers per second per million light years, R, that means that for every million light years something is away, it's receding at a velocity of 22 kilometers per second. So a galaxy one million light years away would be receding at 22 kilometers per second. Two million light years, 44 kilometers per second. 10 million light years, 10 times 22, 220 kilometers per second. 100 million light years, 2,200 kilometers per second. So you just take, all you have to do is take the Hubble's constant, however distant it is, tells you the velocity, and of course you can invert that, which is what is normally done. We don't normally try to figure out how fast it's going to be moving. What we do is try to figure out the distance. Although you can use it, you know, if you find a galaxy that you find a distance to, you can work it backwards. Is it working correctly? Oh, we found a distance to this galaxy by some other method. What does Hubble's law predict for it? And do they match? Because if you discover a distance to a galaxy and you figure it should be two and a half billion light years away and Hubble's law said it should be five and a half billion light years away, something's wrong. Whether it's with Hubble's law or whether it's with your measurements, there's something wrong there. They should match. And that's just a way of kind of finally, finally getting down to what the value of this is. But for a long time, I mean, even 30-ish years ago, there was a big debate, and the number varied. What people thought it was varied by a factor of three. So uh, the numbers might have varied from you know, something like 22 on the lower side to up to 60 or 70 on the higher side. Well, you can think that makes a big difference in determining the distance. If I don't know this to a factor of three, then I don't know my distance to a factor of three. So it might be 5 billion light years away. It might be 1.6 billion light years. You know, we don't know the difference on it. And there were variations in between. It's since more observations have kind of settled it down to the lower end, but it's relatively recent within the last couple of decades that we've really got a pretty good handle on this. There's still maybe some variation in it, and I'll look at that on the next slide because the question is, is it really a constant? What if Hubble's constant isn't a constant? And one of the things is, when we look out in space, we look back in time. So if we use this to determine distances at something 10 billion light years away, we're saying that everything was the same 10 billion years ago as it is now. What if things have changed? And one of the easiest things to think of changing, not changing that would change things, is gravity. What does gravity do? Gravity pulls on everything, right? Earth pulls on you, you pull on the Earth. Earth pulls on the moon, the moon pulls on the Earth. Our galaxy pulls on other galaxies, other galaxies pull on us. It's always an attractive force. So if things are moving and something's pulling on them, it might not stop them, but it should slow them down a little bit. Right? If you've got a gravitational force, this thing's moving away and you've got something pulling a little bit on it, it should be moving slower now than it was billions of years ago. It should be the logical assumption that we'd think that Hubble's constant really wasn't constant. It was a different value billions of years ago. Things would have been moving faster. Right? You have this massive explosion going out and you can think of it you know, as something exploding out there. Oh, okay, air resistance is slowing things down. Gravity is slowing things down. That's not, that air resistance doesn't affect us out here. But things would be slowing down that expansion. So things should be expanding slower today than they were billions of years ago. We're actually going to find out later it's the opposite. That doesn't quite work. We're actually expanding faster today, but that's something we have to look at in a little bit. But just as a logical, I mean, this should make sense to you, I hope, that if we have gravity pulling on things, things should be moving slower today than they were yesterday. And they'll move slower tomorrow. Gravity is pulling them down. They should be slowing down. So that would mean that Hubble's constant really isn't constant. Things were moving slower or faster long ago, and they should be moving slower now. But if we can calculate that, we can take that into account and figure how, how Hubble's constant changes so we can actually use that still to determine distances. 
So what we can say is that galaxies should have been moving faster in the past and should be moving slower now. Again, jumping ahead, it's wrong. The logic is right, gravity should be slowing things down, but that's if gravity were the only force involved. And we're going to find out there is some kind of other force that actually is involved and overwhelms gravity on really large scales, apparently, and causes things to expand. And that our universe is actually expanding faster now than it did 10 billion years ago. So let's try to get an idea of the expanding universe before we jump more into that. Um, what do we mean for an expanding universe? Well, one of the things I want to go back to, and we talked vaguely about this before, it was some of what we call the Copernican principle. It comes to us from Copernicus way back in, what was that, chapter 2, chapter 3, where Copernicus is the one who gave us, hey, maybe the sun is the center of the universe and not the earth. He took the earth away from a special place in the universe. And that's what we kind of call the Copernican principle now is, is we keep expanding that. Instead of first he, he took the earth, he made the sun the center of the universe. He didn't make the sun just some random star going around everything. It was still special. So he didn't get rid of that. But now, since then, we've gotten the idea that not only is that the sun isn't the center of the universe, the sun isn't the center of the galaxy. And you know, what does this mean? So what we're finding, the Copernican principles, really just states that we're not in any special point in the universe. That no matter where we are in the universe, we would see exactly the same things. So when we look at this expansion, you may think, oh, well, we must be at the center of the universe. Everything is receding away from us and receding away from us at high speeds. You know, what did we do to offend them all? all they're all moving away from us at really, really high speeds. But it's the same. You could go to any other galaxy anywhere in the universe, and they'd see exactly the same thing. So it doesn't matter which galaxy you're on here. If you're on the blue galaxy, you had everything close to you, and everything gets further away, and everything gets further away. But if you're in the green galaxy, same thing. Everything was close, and they get further away and further away. And if you measured how far they are away, you know, the blue, the blue and green galaxies separate slowly. The green and yellowish galaxy separate even faster because they're further away. It doesn't matter which galaxy you're on. The green galaxy sees the orange, the yellow, the blue. They all see exactly the same thing. So it really doesn't matter. Every single, every single one will see the same expansion, every single galaxy. So you could travel out. If you could somehow you know, transport yourself out to one of these galaxies 10 billion light years away, and then get a telescope set up, measure the expansion of all these galaxies, you'd find the same universal expansion. Wouldn't make any difference. You're going to find that every other galaxy is moving away from you at really high speeds. So really it means there is no special point in the universe. And one of the things that's going to lead us to is the idea that there's, there's no edge to the universe, there's no center to the universe. There is no center. So there is no central portion where everything comes from. And there's no edge to it. You can keep traveling, traveling through the universe, and never reach an edge. Uh, you can consider that similar to the surface of the Earth if you want to think of something in two dimensions. Right? I can go for a walk. Ignore the fact that there's oceans out there. You know, but if I keep walking and walking, I'm never going to find the edge of the Earth. I can keep, unless you're a flat earther, in which case you might think you'll find the edge of the Earth. Otherwise, if you just keep walking, you know, I'll go around and around, and you know, I, can come around, I can come right back to where I started. The universe is kind of the same thing, but you've got to try to go a dimension up. Imagine a three-dimensional universe curved into four dimensions instead of a two-dimensional flat surface of the Earth curved into three. I know you can't. I, well, if you can imagine that, that's great, because I can't. I can teach it. I know, I know what it means, but I can't visualize it myself. How can I imagine three dimensions bending into some other shape? I can't. So don't want you to think I'm, being able to, I'm able to see it any better. But the universe could be the same thing. You could, walk, you could travel around the universe and end up back where you started. Kind of like you do on the surface of the earth. You're not going to find a center. You're not going to find an edge because you need one more dimension. You need that fourth dimension that we can't see. Right? If you're confined to the surface of the earth, can't look up, can't look down, you're never going to, you can, I can walk around all I want confined to the surface. I am never going to find the center of the earth. I've got to move in the third dimension to do it. I'm never going to find the edge of the earth, right? I've got to move in a third dimension. But if I'm just confined to the surface of the earth, I'm never going to find that. 
And that's kind of what the universe is like. So we're not going to find a center or an edge. It doesn't matter where you are. You're going to see the same kind of thing. Now, I want to look at a couple of examples of this. Um, like a one-dimensional one example would be a ruler, just looking in one dimension here. If you imagine a flexible ruler, a bunch of ants on it. And if you look at you know, what they're doing, if you look from the perspective of one of the ants, say on the two-centimeter mark, sees everybody else moving further away. They're just standing there. They're not walking around. So imagine them just standing there. Just because the ruler is expanding, everything is going to get further away. So this one gets further away at two centimeters per minute. This one at 5, this one at 10. So they're going to get further and further, or all going to get further away, and the more distant ones are going to seem further. But the ant at 2 is at no special position. I can imagine the ant at 12 get exactly the same thing. Every ant is getting further away from this one as well. And that's what we see with the expansion. Every galaxy sees exactly the same thing, sees every galaxy, every other galaxy getting further away from them. All right, so it wouldn't matter which one you're on. What, what ant you pick, you're all going to see the same thing. You're not going to find a perspective where some ant's going to see ants coming closer. No matter what you do there, everything's going to get further away. So that's kind of a one-dimensional example. A three-dimensional example, uh, raisin bread. So if you put a loaf of bread to bake with raisins in it, okay, you can measure how far apart they are. As it rises and they expand, they're all going to get further apart doesn't matter which raisin you observe from. You can pick one here, and everything is going to be further away than it was before. But if I picked one over here, same thing. There's not, not going to be one where everything, where things are getting closer together. Everything is always getting further away. And the farther away, the closer they are, the slower they're moving, the further away they are, the farther, the, the faster they're moving. So, Again, those are a couple of examples. They're, they're not great because I said there's no edge to the universe. Well, there is an edge to the raisin bread where a raisin on the edge sees something a little bit different than you would see if you were in the middle. But try to give you something a little more down to earth than trying to imagine expanding get through three galaxies in three dimensions expanding out into a fourth dimension. All right. So what does this mean? What is actually expanding? It's the empty space between the galaxies and the galaxy clusters that is actually expanding. When we talk about the expanding universe, Earth isn't getting bigger. Okay? The solar system isn't stretching out, so even though there's empty space between the planets, there, there's, the distances between the planets are staying the same. Gravity will overwhelm the expansion on local levels. So the sun's gravity holds everything together. The galaxy's gravity holds the galaxy together. Our galaxy isn't expanding and getting bigger and bigger. It is the empty space between the galaxy clusters is what is expanding. So between large clusters of galaxies, even individual galaxies stay pretty much at the same, uh, if they're part of the same cluster, would stay relatively close. They're bound together gravitationally. They're held together. That's going to hold that cluster together over the expansion. But the empty spaces between them get is what gets larger, and that pulls the galaxies apart. So it's really not galaxies moving any more than it was the raisins moving in the bread. Right? The raisins were not moving themselves. The bread was expanding and dragging the raisins with it. The universe is expanding, dragging the galaxies with it and separating them by the galaxy clusters. So anything that is gravitationally bound together is going to stay exactly the same. Our solar system, our galaxy, even our cluster, even clusters of galaxies will remain the same. That empty space in between them is what is going to be changing. And as I've already talked about, you know, in reality, there is no edge or center to the universe. So as far as we know, no matter how far you go, you're never going to find an edge uh, to the universe. Now, our examples, as I said, our examples last time, uh, the last one, were not very good at that. They kind of you know, did have an edge. There was an edge to them where something on the edge of the raisin bread would see different things, right? You can look off from one side, you're not going to see any more raisins. Well, there's no place in the universe that you're going to go where you're going to see galaxies on one side and no galaxies on the other, just emptiness. You have to think of, the, think of it as, you know, multiple dimensions, which is, again, a little bit difficult. All right, so finish up this chapter that we got to start on this last time, so we're 
doing pretty good. Um, we saw the expansion of the universe. Really, it's been about 100 years that we've been able to see that the universe was expanding. And Hubble really identified this expansion and gave us another measure of getting distance, another way of determining distances because using the velocities and a constant. Once you figured out that constant, you could then determine distances. And as I said, again, the expansion is an expansion of space, not the direct motion of the galaxies. So space is expanding, dragging the galaxies, the galaxy clusters around with it. Pockets that are gravitationally bound just get dragged along, drug along as they are. All righty, questions? Yeah? Yeah. Like the great rip is one of those. The great? Like a rip. Great rip. So like how you said it's expanding faster and mm -hmm. faster, so it's slowing down. Yeah. People think that eventually will expand fast enough that it will overcome the gravitational force. Yeah. Yeah, that would be something. I mean, if it does expand fast enough, I mean, what I told you about galaxy clusters, Billions, trillions of years from now, but I don't want anyone thinking this is going to happen before the final. <laughs> no, final won't get canceled because of that. But yeah, it is. I mean, if, if it started going faster and faster, eventually it would overwhelm the gravity and could start pulling those clusters apart. I don't know if it would ever get to the point where, well, I suppose theoretically it could, where it would actually rip galaxies apart, but I think that's a lot more than ripping like galaxy clusters apart. But good, yeah, thank you. Others? Well, we'll get our last chapter done here, which is chapter 27, and the last one for the exam next week. So um, we're going to look at um, some different types of galaxies, active galaxies and quasars. So some uh, different types of galaxies from what we've looked at so far. And they're different in a couple of ways. And in fact, two different things between what we call a normal galaxy, which is all the galaxies I've been talking about so far, spiral galaxies, elliptical galaxies, those are generally normal galaxies. Active galaxies are unusual in that they have, they're, they're brighter overall. So if you saw a spiral galaxy that was unusually bright, that could be a sign of an active galaxy. You, know, you have typical spiral galaxies and barred spiral galaxies have some brightness range. You find one that's 10 times brighter, something unusual is going on. It's an unusually bright galaxy, so more luminous. It's giving off more energy. The other is that they emit what we call non-stellar radiation or non-thermal radiation. So they're not emitting the radiation just of stars. They do emit star. We see starlight with them. But a lot of their energy is dominated by other processes. Most galaxies like ours, like elliptical galaxies, are dominated by the light of stars. You add all the starlight up, that's what the galaxy looks like. And if you remember, we talked way, way long ago about the black body spectrum, and that was thermal radiation, energy of heat from stars. Well, the spectrum of a typical galaxy looks like that. It would have that same kind of peaked curve and then fading off. It would give off lots of visible light because it's dominated by stars, it would give off very little x-rays, very little radio waves. However, there are active galaxies that give off lots of x-rays. They give off lots of radio waves. So there's different types of processes going on that cause them to emit a different type of radiation. They still give off visible light, but they're not completely dominated by it anymore. They can give off lots of radio waves as well, for example. And in fact, that's how a lot of them were originally detected. And this all comes down to the, the nucleus of the galaxy. Sometimes we call them active galaxies, but it's really the nucleus. And so an active galactic nucleus, sometimes abbreviated as AGN, is where everything is going on. That's where things are going on here. What is happening with the galaxy is going down there, not throughout the whole galaxy, but the effects actually start down at the center. And if you remember from our galaxy, that was a black hole. So that supermassive black hole at the center is going to be what's going to be powering these active galaxies. And in fact, in a case like this, 
You've got some dusty material, so you know there's some material there, but you've also got jets of material spiraling out from the center. Something is going on at that central portion that's different than what's happening in our galaxy and in most of the other galaxies that we see. So I want to look at a couple different types of active galaxies. There's a few that your book doesn't go into very much. I just wanted to mention them briefly, uh, talk about a, a couple others. Uh, one are called Seifert galaxies, which look like a spiral galaxy for the most part. You can kind of see some of the spiral arms swirling out from here. But what's unusual about it is that the nucleus is unusually bright. It's giving off a lot more energy than it normally would. So it's, instead of being dominated by the spiral arms, usually when you look at a spiral galaxy, what jumps out at you? Well, you see those beautiful spiral arms spiraling away. Well, in this case, you don't see a lot of that because the galaxy itself is bright. The central portion is bright, and that overwhelms the rest of it. So a Seifert galaxy is one example of these, um, a lower-level active galaxy where the nucleus of a spiral galaxy is unusually active. Now, our galaxy isn't like this. Our galaxy is not unusually active at the center. There's some activity. You put some material into the black hole. Remember, as it spirals in, it can give off energy. Well, what you might imagine is if you put more material in, the more material you're spiraling into that black hole, the more energy that nucleus can give off, the more energy you can produce from that black hole before it crosses the event horizon. So that's one example of a type of, uh, galaxy, a type of active galaxy. Another one is a radio galaxy, which, as you might guess from its name, comes from excess radio emission from the galaxy. So the galaxy itself is here. If you look at it just visible light, this is actually a combined image um, that shows radio. These lobes are actually radio emission measured. The galaxy itself would just look like an ordinary elliptical galaxy. But generally, ordinary elliptical galaxies aren't giving off lots of radio waves. When you detect them, so when you measure put a radio telescope here, you get unusual amounts of radio radiation being detected. And you often get jets of material out as well. So when you map it in the radio, you don't see maybe just a little bit of radio emission coming from the center, but you get large radio lobes of material where material is streaming outward from that central area and plowing into the medium between the galaxies. So not the interstellar medium, the intergalactic medium. So plows into materials between the stars, between the galaxies, and excites them, causes them to glow. We saw something very similar to this when we looked at star formation. We talked about Herbig-Aro objects, if you recall. That was a young star forming that threw out jets of material that plowed into the material around it, and the Herbig-Aro object was what was glowing out there. This is it on a massive scale, not just on a single star, but on a whole galaxy, so on a much, much larger scale. But it's another thing that we see. A normal elliptical galaxy doesn't do this. Large elliptical, some elliptical galaxies do, and those are what we call the active ones. And then there are also uh, blazars, which don't look very amazing, but the center is an elliptical galaxy, and it's emitting unusual amounts of radiation. So you can get a combination between these two. You can either get one, something that looks like this, where you have jets of material coming out, or you can get something where you just get an unusual amount of material coming from the center. One of the things we think might be happening there is it's a matter of perspective. How are you looking at this? Remember, we can't go walk around these things and look at them from all directions. We could have this one, we're looking and the beams are coming out one direction or the other. If we were over here looking right down that beam, we wouldn't see it. It's coming straight at us. All we'd see is the intense emission coming from the center. So it may be that blazars are really just radio galaxies, but we're looking right down the beam. Essentially, it's beaming the material right towards us. So one thought on, the, on those that we look at. All right, now the ones that we really talk about, the common ones are what they call uh, quasars. Uh, quasars are named for quasi-stellar radio sources because of how they were first detected. They looked like stars. Many of them were classified as stars. They were logged as different types of stars in catalogs. They looked exactly like a star, had some unusual properties, and that was one of the problems is that when we studied them, you know, we looked at some of these, the, the spectral lines didn't match with anything we saw here on Earth. 
So what do we do? We try to match it up. Well, if you remember, way, way back, I think we talked about the sun, helium. Helium was discovered in the sun before it was discovered on Earth, back in the 1800s. Hey, here's, here's, element, here's lines we don't recognize. Maybe it's some mysterious element. However, by the 1960s, the periodic table was full. Now, unless you're talking about trans-uranium elements out beyond uranium, really heavy elements, there was no space in the periodic table to put in other elements. You can't have something between carbon with six protons and nitrogen with seven. Right? What's in between six and seven? Well, six and a half. How do you put half of a proton into a nucleus? You can't do that. So there were no gaps in the periodic table to explain. And what Martin Schmidt found in 1963 was that he did match up. He finally did identify those lines as being hydrogen. But not hydrogen lines where they were supposed to be. They were so far redshifted that nobody recognized them before. So instead of being where they belonged, they were way out of whack. And in fact, if you do the calculations on this one using Hubble's law, it was receding at 15% the speed of light. Now, that's much faster than we can imagine going right now. With current technology, we can't imagine going 15% the speed of light. However, this object, known as 3C273, it's a radio catalog designation, uh, was receding extremely fast. Well, what does Hubble's law tell us? That this star, this star is receding at 15% of the speed of light, but if we use Hubble's law, then we find out it's not a star. It has to be something much further away because we wouldn't be able to see a star. Even the brightest star over, that, over those kind of distances, the distance that this implies, we wouldn't be able to see any star. Maybe, even then we'd be pushing it to see a supernova. It'd be, be, be difficult to see a supernova even at that distance. So this has to be something even brighter. And Hubble's law is telling us that this is very distant. So what we actually think we're seeing is the star-like core of a distant galaxy. They only look like stars because they're so far away. This is really the extremely active nucleus of a very distant galaxy. So the object there looks a lot like a star to us. In fact, it even gets this distinct diffraction pattern. That's associated with a point source of light when it goes through a telescope. You're essentially seeing light bending around some of the fixtures within the telescope. So when we see something like that, normally you see it on stars, but when you look at galaxies, you don't get that cross pattern, even if they're relatively similar in brightness. But stars will get you this kind of cross pattern. So it behaved like a star. It was identified of a star. But we now know of millions of them. Every single one of them shows a redshift. And 15% the speed of light is small. That's a small redshift for a quasar. They actually get out to 96% the speed of light. So getting way out there, they are moving incredibly fast, means they have to be way out at the edge of the universe. Means they also have to be some of the very first things that formed in the universe. So we only see them long ago. We don't see them as they are now. We don't know what, what do they look like now? Well, we'll come back to that. You know, what do these quasars look like now? We don't see any close to us, nothing within a few billion light years. So what, would, what has happened to them over that time? So again, what does Hubble's law tell us? Well, when we take an image here, right, here's what we see. This is what we see when we first look at it. But if we block out that light or subtract out the star's light, you get a little bit of noise in there, but you can actually start to see a galaxy around it. It's just not visible. You can't see it because this is overwhelmingly bright. You can't see anything beyond that. We can see when we block it out, we can. Think of that as like the corona of the sun, right? Is it light out there? No, it's cloudy. But if it was clear out there, sun's corona is right there around it, but you can't see it. Why? The sun is overwhelmingly bright, and it blocks out the corona around it. If we can block out the sun during an eclipse, Corona's there. Hey, it's night there. It doesn't just all of a sudden appear when the eclipse occurs. It's been there all the time. We just can't see it. Well, the same thing was here. Until we subtract out this, uh, then we can start to see that there are galaxies. They're billions of light years away. There's nothing nearby. There, is, there are no quasars nearby. 
Nothing within a few billion light years. So whatever formed them had to be something that existed only long ago. Otherwise, we'd see them nearby now. Why do we not see anything that's, you know, 10 million light years away, 100 million, maybe even a billion light years away? Why wouldn't we see quasars? They'd be easy to detect. If they're this bright that we can see them 10 billion light years away, they'd be easy to find. They'd be some of the brightest objects if they were only a billion light years away. So where did they all go? What happened to them all? Well, we'll come back to that. Let's first of all look at what the energy source must be. And first of all, how about the size? How big is the energy source? Well, one thing we find is that the quasars change in brightness really fast. Months, weeks, days, they will get brighter and fainter in a coherent manner. Not in a regular pattern like a Cepheid, but they'll get brighter and then they'll lock down and they'll get fainter. Well, they cannot, that means they have to be really small. In order to change with the time frame of just a couple days, you've got to be smaller than a light day. If you're bigger than that, then the light gets all smeared out. So if something gigantic, say 10 light years across, was trying to change in brightness, getting brighter, getting fainter, you'd learn about this today. Five years later, you'd learn about the middle getting brighter. Five years later, this, this side would be getting brighter all the time. This would be changing again. It would all smear things out based on how large it is. So something 10 light years across, couldn't vary on time frames more than about 10 years. It's not going to be able to get brighter and fainter and brighter and fainter again in less than about a 10-year, 10, 10 or 20-year period. So if these things are getting brighter in weeks, they've got to be solar system-sized. I mean, our solar system from Neptune to Neptune would be, what, about 10, 12 hours-ish, I think it is? You know, that's pretty big, but we're getting, you're only getting a little bit bigger. You're only getting out into the Kuiper belt before you're getting to the point we'd be talking about light days across. So they have to put all of this energy has to be produced from something the size of our solar system. Remember our sun, we can't even see if we put it 30 light years away, you're not gonna see it. So what is producing these things? So much light from such a small object at the edge of the universe, essentially. And probably already can guess that we're gonna say it's gotta be a supermassive black hole. So something with material spiraling into it. Right? Black hole itself cannot give us anything. But as material spirals into it, before it crosses that event horizon, here's the energy source. Because this is the way we can get a lot of energy. Remember, these things are seen at the edge of the universe. You can't see a supernova. But these things are bright. So supernova is tremendously bright a supernova going off by a quasar, you wouldn't be able to see it. That light, even if this, at that distance, you would not be able to see it because they are, they'd fade out so much. The quasars have to be giving out many, many times the light of a single supernova. The only way we can do that, that we can understand, is if material is spiraling into a black hole. Remember, once you cross the event horizon, you can't get anything out. No energy, no light, nothing, no information. But as you spiral around in this disk, right, as material is being torn into the black hole, torn apart as it goes into the black hole, into what we call an accretion disk where it's gathering that material, that's where you can give off the energy. High gravity of it pulls things moving faster and faster. That disk, the material in that disk is moving at really high speeds. As it rubs against each other, that produces a lot of friction and heats it up to millions of degrees. So that gives us a lot of energy. And in fact, you can convert I think I'll give you the number after. I might give it to you in the next section. It's like 10 or 20% of the matter being converted to energy. E equals mc squared, right? If you're converting 10% of a star to energy, that's a lot of energy. Nuclear fusion, less than 1%. gets 0.7. So this is many times more efficient than nuclear fusion. Not quite as efficient as pure matter and antimatter, which would be 100%. But if you're converting 10 or 20% of the matter spiraling into that black hole to energy, that's a lot of energy. And that's not necessarily just one solar mass of material. It could be a lot more than that as it spirals in. You could have a lot more. You could have clusters of stars. You could have gas clouds that could be spiraling in here. All right. So let me finish up this section, and then we'll look a little more detail about that black hole. Um, 
the differences between an active galaxy and an ordinary galaxy. Active galaxies emit more energy and a different type of energy. So their spectrum is quite different than that of an ordinary galaxy. Um, quasars are an important type of galaxy. Those are the ones we really talked about here. And are the distant core, cores of distant galaxies. And our energy source that we're going to look at here in this last section is a supermassive black hole. So a supermassive black hole at the center of this. All right, questions before I jump into our last section. All righty. Well, what powers an active galactic nucleus? Well, reviewing kind of what we went over here. So a lot of this we've gone over already. What are the properties that we know about these? I've already given you the answer, right? But first of all, they're bright. They're brighter. Than, they outshine the entire galaxy. You have to block out this central portion to be able to see the galaxy around it. So they're extremely big, but the power source is really small, the size of our solar system. They emit jets. You get narrow jets, jets at a narrow beam, speeds very high speeds. We need something much more powerful than nuclear fusion. Nuclear fusion will not cut it to give us this kind of energy. We need something much, more, much stronger to do that. So we need something that, that works a little bit better than that, or a lot better than that. And we also know that they're more common in the early history of the universe than they are today. We don't see any around today. We've got to go back billions of light years away in order to be able to see them. So what is some of the evidence? Again, I've told you already what it's going to be. It's going to be a black hole at the center. But what is some of our evidence for that? Well, let's look at indirect evidence. You've got a large mass and a small volume. In order to produce that much energy, right, a star of four solar masses isn't going to do it, isn't going to produce near enough energy even with lots of material spiraling into it. You're talking things that are millions or even billions of times the mass of our sun. How do you get such a large mass into something the size of our solar system? Right? Imagine putting a million, four million suns within our solar system. They wouldn't be stable. Right? You put all those, gravity is going to pull them into one object whether you want it to or not. You couldn't put four million suns within our solar system. They might fit you know, space-wise, but gravity-wise, what are they going to do? all crush in together. So there's no way to get any kind of material, that large amount of material, in such a small volume. We also know of the short time period variations, things going down to days, that they'll get brighter and, uh, brighter and fainter even within a day or two. So they've got to be really small. Well, we can use something to determine the masses. This is for an example near our Milky Way Center. In fact, I think I showed you this diagram before. Center of our galaxy would be way down at the center there. These are some of the stars close to that. And in fact, for the size of our solar system, um, for scale, you know, that little thing down there, that's the inner part of the solar system. If you can see Neptune, I don't think you can even see Neptune in the blue, maybe Neptune in the blue there, that little tiny circle, that would be the orbit of Neptune. So same scale that we'd see here, that would fit right inside, right at this, towards close to the center. And what we see is these stars orbiting. So this star comes down, and within the size of our solar system, gets turned around and gets flung back out. So you have to have a very concentrated source of mass. What else can do that? I mean, a star isn't just going to stop and turn around unless there is some really intense source of gravity there. And you can calculate it. You can figure out. You can watch these stars. You can figure out their period, how long it takes them to orbit. You can figure out the axis of their orbit. And you can calculate using Kepler's third law. And you find out that in order to explain the orbits that we see, you need something with about 4 million times the mass of our sun compressed into one solar system size. So our solar system, right down there at the center size, you've got to put 4.1 million suns worth of mass. Nothing else you can do, nothing else we can imagine can get you that much mass in that small of a space, except for a black hole. Um, the other we can look at, this is one for our galaxy. If we look at the galaxy M87, uh, this is a large uh, elliptical galaxy. We're only looking at the central portion here, very close to the central region. It has some activity. It actually has a jet of material coming out of it. But when you take measurements here, you can find that one side, the gas on one side is redshifted, moving away from you. 
The gas on the other side is blue shifted, moving towards you. You can use that to figure out orbits. How fast is that gas moving? So you've got this gas moving away, this gas moving towards you. You get a blue shift on one side, a red shift on the other from the hydrogen gas. And that allows you to determine the mass. And this one's even bigger than our, our, our Milky Ways. So our, our, our black hole is actually on the small side for uh, black holes as centers of galaxies. We're, on the, we're a relatively small side. Things get up to tens of millions, hundreds of millions, or even billions of times our sun's mass. So I don't remember the exact mass of this one. I should have put it on there, but it's a lot. But we can measure those gas motions. So how do we produce energy? Well, again, once you get into the black hole, nothing escapes from it. So we cannot get any energy out of the black hole itself. Even though it looks like material is beaming out of the black hole here, it's not coming out from the event horizon. That's still outside of the event horizon where that's escaping. The energy is actually produced in a disk. We call an accretion disk around the black hole. So if a star wanders too close, unstable orbit might get a little bit closer and closer. Eventually, tidal forces are going to kick in. Tidal forces will then pull on one side of the star harder than they pull on the other. Eventually, it'll shred the star apart into a disk. So it'll pull. It can actually kill a star. Pull that star into a disk, pull that material into the disk around it, and as that material spirals in down towards the event horizon, it accelerates it to really high speeds, good fractions of the speed of light, heating it to hundreds of thousands of degrees. That's where energy is being produced. As the material spirals in, in this disk, we can get 10 to 20% of the mass being converted to energy. E equals mc squared. Send a whole mass of a star in, and a tenth of a solar mass of energy is, a tenth of a solar mass is being converted directly to energy. It's a lot of energy. Much more than a supernova explosion, much more than anything else, and far more than the nuclear fusion rates, which are less than 1% of a star's um, energy being produced. And that's not even the whole star, right? That's only the material at the core. It's only the material at the core that's being converted, not the entire star. Here, you're ripping apart a star and converting a tenth, say, of its mass directly into energy. This gives you far more energy than pretty much anything else. The only thing that would do better than this is if you had large quantities of matter and antimatter, you were able to uh, combine together. Then you could get close to 100%, and you could get something that would make a quasar look like nothing because you'd have 10 times the amount of energy, essentially. All right, so how do we get the jets from this? How do we get jets of material? Um, and a couple of the ways that we can see them, you've got all this material spiraling in. So the blue here is the accretion disk. And as material spirals in, it's producing a lot of energy. That energy is trying to escape. So the energy tries to get out, tries to get away. You convert matter to energy. Energy tries to escape outward, but it can't go back through the disk. Disk is all this dense material. So you try to send energy back out through it, it gets stopped. It gets absorbed in there and just continues to heat up the disk, producing more energy. Then, so eventually, it, the only way it can escape is out through the axis. So if you imagine a flattened disk, almost a donut shape, as the material goes in, it starts to build up the energy here, builds it up to a larger diameter, and then focuses this jet of material. That's the only way the energy can escape. Can't come through all this dense material that's trying to work its way into the black hole. You got all this material going into the black hole, and that's what's working down here. The only way you can get is this one weak spot along the axis. That's where everything gets, comes out. And we see this quite often in active galactic nuclei. It's very, very common to see these jets. We also see them in stellar situations when stars are forming, which is probably a very similar reason, right? Except that you have a star forming, you'd have the disk of material around it, that energy can't escape along the disk, so it has to escape perpendicular to the disk. That's the only way it can get out. With the intense energies associated, those jets end up coming out at good fractions, 90, 95% the speed of light, really fast. So they are zipping a lot of energy out there, and that's where the energy is coming from. Where we're getting a lot of that energy from is from along, along those jets. And we actually see these 
in some examples here, this is an example. This is that same galaxy I showed you. This is M87, showing it a little bit further out. But if we look down, that's the active. What we're seeing there is the energy coming from that disk of material. And there is a jet of material being spewed out. So sometimes it looks like it comes in various bursts where you can see denser areas. It may be, it may also be that that's just where it's hitting a denser pocket in the intergalactic material or within the galaxy itself. So we can see those jets of material. Uh, the one coming towards you gets magnified in terms of brightness for relativistic effects. So there's probably another one going away. But as the one coming towards you gets magnified, guess what? The other one gets demagnified. So it's really sometimes really hard to see that. You do sometimes see two if they're going pretty well parallel to you. But it sometimes can be hard to see that one that's moving away. And that just goes back to relativistic effects as to why you cannot see that. So how do we study the early universe with these? Well, remember, right, light travel time. The further away something is, the longer ago we see it. So we see quasars as they were many billions of years ago. We don't see any now. In fact, we hardly saw any, you know, even just a few billion years ago. And relative numbers, you know, relative number of quasars, very, very small here, it didn't really peak We're here, right after the Big Bang. So those first couple billions of years, that's when all the quasars were. And if they were a black hole, where did they go? Black holes just don't disappear. Right? You form a, a black hole that's 10 million times the mass of our sun. It doesn't, doesn't just go away. Yes, black holes do evaporate, but we're talking about trillion of year timescales for something that size, much, much longer. So the black holes still have to be here. So where, is this, where are these quasars today? We don't see them. You know, they're gone. And what we find is that the black holes are still here. They're at the centers of galaxies. The difference is they're not being fed anymore. You're not giving, you don't have any fuel for the engines. That central engine that powers the black hole billions of years ago was able to be fed. You had stars to throw at it. You had gas clouds to throw at it at a prodigious rate. Not just the occasional star once every 10,000 years. I think that's the number I gave you for our galaxy, something like that. But constantly. Get a star today, get a star tomorrow, get a star the next day. Keep flooding that material in. You had a lot of material fl flowing into it. And therefore, larger accretion disk, more mass. More mass being converted to energy means a lot brighter object. So something that we could have seen over the very large distances that exist there. Those black holes are still around. They're just dormant. If you could somehow feed them again, throw material into the black hole, you could actually wake up the, wake up the quasar. The thing is that What's changed is that, you know, right now, you get, okay, where are the fuel? You get an occasional passing star or gas cloud. You can get, the star can be torn apart, but that's not going to give you a lot of energy. Yes, it is, but not, com not compared to what you need for a quasar. You need a lot more energy to be able to do that. And the source of that is going to be galaxies colliding. Remember, we just talked about universal expansion, right? Universe is big today. Go back billions of years, it was smaller and smaller and smaller. The galaxies were all still there. Everything was closer together. So galaxy collisions were really common in the past. Galaxies were constantly colliding. When galaxies collide, you're throwing more material into that center. You could be constantly, instead of waiting millions and many billions of years for galaxies to collide, they could collide you know, every few million years giving a fresh source of fuel to the black hole. That's where you're getting a lot. That's where you're getting a lot of this energy is because these collisions were so much more common in the past than they are today. And why? Well, it's not that galaxies don't want to collide anymore. It's just as they spread apart, they're not going to be as likely to run into each other. It'll still happen. And when the Milky Way and Andromeda collide in three, four billion years, we'll end up having an active galaxy. Right? We're going to feed that black hole. It's not going to be intense enough to become a quasar. Again, it's a one-time event. So you'll feed it. It will become an active galaxy for a while. Then eventually that material around the black hole will settle down, and it will become back, come back to normal. But when we look back in the past at these very distant galaxies, we find lots of things like this. 
where these galaxies don't really look like the galaxies we're used to talking about. You can see that some of them are spirals. In fact, many of these are spirals, but they're all distorted. A uh, few are not spirals, but they're all distorted in terms of shape. These are galaxy collisions. And this is how galaxies will slowly form over time. They'll get distorted. You'll have streamers of material coming out here. Right, you can see a nice spiral arm there, but this one's kind of elongated. Um, here, these two just look like they're completely uh, torn apart. This one is something else colliding together. And when they do that, that's when you're getting that fuel for the center of the galaxy. That's where you get its fuel from. And if you collide them now and then again 10 or 20 million years instead of waiting billions of years, you're constantly adding fuel to that accretion disk. That gets converted to energy. When that was happening a lot early in the history of the universe, that's when we had the era of the quasars, those first few billion years. That's really the only time we saw quasars in any significant quantities. You had to be constantly feeding that black hole, and that's not happening anymore. Could you do it? Yeah, you could. If you could get enough galaxies colliding together, you could probably form, reform a quasar. How you're going to get that to go is, you know, with everything ex as things expand, it was, isn't going to be as likely. All right, so let me finish up here. Active galaxies, again, the power source is a supermassive black hole at the core. Um, we can look at the existence because of the amount of energy. A lot of energy being produced and a small motion in a very small area. That's one thing. And we can look in some cases at the motions of stars or gas near the center. And this tells us about the early history of the universe because these are things, now we can see things that are back at the edge of the universe. It gives us kind of a peek to what things were like shortly after the Big Bang, which is what we'll be talking about next week, when I'll talk about the Big Bang and then how things, kind of how things formed from that and the large-scale motions of the large-scale structures of the universe. So I'll hold those chapters off until next time. So finished up a little bit early today. Sorry. No, we're so disappointed. I know. So if there are questions, otherwise, if you have your data with you next time, and you have time, you can work on that. You can actually get all of your graphs completely done. So if you remember to bring your data sheet too, that's great. If you don't, you can also do that on right after the exam. Uh, if you want to add your points to it, you're not required to. The lab is going to be just a set of data that I will give you. That's all I need to see for the lab. So you can do the lab fine without your data. But if you want that confidence to say, hey, my graph is done and it's perfect, and all I have to do is slip it into my report, you're welcome to bring yours and get all of that done as well between the next two classes. So have a good day, and I'll see you Wednesday.